The Institute of Art and Ideas is excited to announce Closer to Truth as an official partner for our upcoming How the Light Gets In Festival at Hey on Why, happening this year, May 24th to 27th. Closer to Truth examines humanity's deepest questions with the world's greatest thinkers, from Nobel laureates and renowned scientists to theologians and best-selling authors. For 20 years, Closer to Truth has explored the deep questions of cosmos, consciousness, and meaning. This year, host Robert Lawrence Kuhn journeys to new depths with their philosophy of biology season, exploring topics like evolution, race, alien intelligences, sex and gender, and much more. Get early access to full episodes from this brand new season by registering for a free membership at their website, closertotruth.com. Discover the fundamental issues of existence, engage new and diverse ways of thinking, and seek out your own answers with Closer to Truth. Hello and welcome to Philosophy for Our Times, bringing you the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. Nietzsche famously declared God is dead in the late 19th century. But what about reality itself? Is it time to jettison it in favour of a more effective and compelling new alternative? In this week's episode, join outspoken critic of philosophical realism, Hilary Lawson, as he makes the case that reality is the Enlightenment equivalent of God, elusive, unattainable, and everywhere. Hilary Lawson is a philosopher best known for his theory of closure, which puts forward an ambitious non-realist metaphysics. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe on your platform of choice and visit our website, ii.tv, for hundreds more podcasts, videos, and articles from the world's leading thinkers. It's now time to welcome Hilary Lawson to Philosophy for Our Times. Thank you. So I'm going to begin by taking you back 140 years to 1882. Bismarck is the Chancellor of Germany, and he's uh, reunited it just 10 years earlier. Gladstone is, on the, is Prime Minister in Britain in the States. The Civil War is still a recent memory. And a relatively insignificant academic called Friedrich Nietzsche published a book called what was, it was first translated as The Joyful Wisdom. We now know it as The Gay Science. And um, at the time, things weren't that great for, for Nietzsche. Certainly wasn't very joyful. He'd, uh, he'd had to abandon his uh, post. He no longer had an academic post. Nobody was really reading his books. The Gay Science actually sold the miraculous number of 100 copies in the next 10 years. Soon he will be publishing his own, own books because no one was reading them. Nevertheless, the philosophy that he outlined in this book had echoes throughout the intellectual history of the 20th century. And one of the claims that he made in, uh, in the book, in actually what he called the thir third book, but it's re they're really chapters in length, was the claim, God is dead. Of course, at the time, it didn't really have any impact because nobody was reading it. <laughs> but uh, it was remarkably prophetic because at the time in, in Europe, 90% uh, of people were baptized when, when Nietzsche was writing this, and now the figure is something around 10%. So the decline in religion was almost continuous from Nietzsche's remark. And he went on to say, God is dead and we have killed him. Of course, what he's understood to have meant by that is that human knowledge, the unfurling of the Enlightenment, gradually undermined the belief in a, in a knowledge which came from a higher authority. Well, what has replaced God? It seems to me what, what we've replaced God with is reality. And for those of you who've 
taken leave of God, reality probably feels pleasantly down to earth. It may not be very uh, magical in the way that some people see God as being and, uh, and have the mystery of the universe to it, but it's got a pleasantly down to earth practical uh, exercise and we can make progress in terms of uncovering reality. But there's something rather strange about this idea of reality because the more we explore it, the more it seems to have characteristics which are rather similar to those that previously applied to God. So, well, we'll start with the one which I'm sure you, you can all go along with. It's, uh, it's everywhere and everything, isn't it, reality? But it's also unknowable and unattainable and evasive. And you might not be quite so convinced of those things. Uh, I'm a, I'm a uh, philosopher who has argued against philosophical realism, which is the idea that we can describe reality. So you might expect me to say that reality is uh, unattainable and unknowable and so forth. But in the last 10 years or so, a whole slew of uh, neuroscientists have, have come to a similar view. So, for example, Donald Hoffman, he's at University of California, Irving, and he says, whatever reality is, it's not what you see. What you see is just an adaptive fiction. And uh, David Eagleman at uh, Stanford University says, uh, reality is an illusion perpetuated by our brains. They're leading neuroscientists investigators in, the, in, in perception. And they're not alone, there are others. Anil Seth, Bo Lotto, a whole load of neuroscientists now are questioning whether reality is an illusion. And of course, it's not just neuroscience. Physics, as well, has uncovered the elusive character of reality. You know, we started on the idea that reality was made of lots of small bits, which we understood to be atoms. Well, we've opened the Chinese boxes, haven't we? We have protons and neutrons, and then we had quarks and leptons and bosons and so forth. And then you examine what those particles are, and um, the actual material stuff of them gradually seems to disappear. And we're left with fields and energy, and so forth. Some people even say uh, we're just left with the mathematics. So we seem to have lost the stuff of the universe as far as uh, physics is concerned. And some of the biggest physicists of the last century. I mean, Werner Heisenberg, he, he won the Nobel Prize for creating quantum mechanics, and his interpretation is the one that is widely used. And he came to the conclusion, in the Copenhagen interpretation of quantum mechanics, objective reality has evaporated. And he was a philosopher too. He wrote a rather excellent book called Physics and, and, and Philosophy. He, he went on to say, we have learned that exact science is possible without the basis of metaphysical realism. And more recently, Stephen Hawking, man who uh, originally initiated the theory of everything, abandoned this. 2010, he concluded, there is no model independent test of reality. It follows that a well-constructed model creates a reality of its own. So we've got no way of looking through to see how reality is independently of our, of our models. The questioning of reality is now coming from all, all sides. And what is at root underlying this questioning is the idea that we can't find a God's eye view, a position to look down at where we are and see, oh, that's how it is, because we come from our perspective. 
We come from a perspective which is a function of our physiology, a function of our, our society and history, a function of our language, and so we can't somehow escape that perspective to see down, to see how reality is in itself. Now, this puzzle about reality is even more puzzling than it first appears. Because one of the things about saying that reality is an illusion is that it looks as if we, we might be able to overcome the illusion. We might be able to, you know, pull up a curtain and look behind and see, see what's really going on. And of course, the point is, because of the perspectival character of our, of our thought, we can't do that because anything that we peer through to is going to be perspectival as well. People have had a go, you know, a few hundred years ago, people have suggested that uh, everything in our, in our heads, consciousness was reality, or were part of a universal consciousness. More, more recently, there's been a temptation amongst some philosophers to be attracted by the idea of panpsychism, the idea that out there, material things are also a bit conscious. But these... These accounts of what's, what's ultimately out there suffer from the same problem. They're, they're words in our, in our language. They're, they're, they're a function of our framework. We, we can't break through to, to an alternative story which is going to somehow replace our accounts of, uh, of reality with, 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 with something else. So they're implausible solutions. We've just got to give up on the idea that we're going to arrive at a solution. The puzzle there's a further twist to the way in which it is, it is tricky. So some people faced with this situation have come to the view where the right thing to do is to say nothing about the relationship between ourselves and the world. Nothing at all. And the most obvious example of this, because he was very explicit about it, was Wittgenstein's later work. He'd given up on the idea of describing the relationship between language and the world, essentially for the sort of outlines that I've, I've given you here. And as a consequence to that, he, he avoided making any overall claims about the nature of that relationship. But this hiding strategy, as it were, in relation to reality, is not satisfactory either. And the reason that it's not satisfactory is because in order to understand Wittgenstein's later work, you have, in a way, to give him a metaphysical story. And maybe the metaphysical story that you might give him, we might, people would, might give him different ones, but something along the lines of, we are at play in a language game. But if we can say we're at play in a language game, then, well, we've cracked it, haven't we? We know what's going on. So the way that we have to understand the later victory. He said, oh, we, you just have to read my aphorisms and you'll catch on. But the trouble is the way we catch on <laughs> is to impute to him an overall view which he is avoiding stating. So quite a tricky game, this problem with reality and our recognition that we cannot describe the world and yet what do we then do about it? Back in the 18th century, the great uh, philosopher, Immanuel Kant, started from the position that we have knowledge. And he thought, we've got to work out how thought works in order for us to have knowledge in the end. And he used that to build a structure of the necessary structure of how we think in order to be able to have knowledge. And it seems to me that the contemporary situation is, in fact, exactly 
the reverse. We have to start from the point of view of recognizing that there is no knowledge, that we are unable to see how the world is, and the challenge that we have is to explain how it is that even though we don't have knowledge of reality, and even though our theories don't describe reality, we are nevertheless able to achieve all sorts of things. We can talk about what seems to be a shared reality, which seems pretty fixed, that we can get all things done, we can uh, make sense of the world and so forth. How can we do that if we aren't able to actually describe it? And it seems to me that is the central question that philosophy needs to address, and it's certainly some something that I've spent some time seeking to make some progress with. So how might we escape this puzzle? Because initially it looks impossible. <laughs> how can we do anything if our accounts of the world have got nothing to do? And I do take the view it has nothing to do with what's out there. How, how, are, they so, how are they so effective? As a help, I think. We can just start off by thinking, well, there are plenty of things that language can't describe. I mean, aren't there? I mean, it can't describe, if you've never had it, the taste of an orange. It doesn't matter how much you try and tell people, someone what the taste of orange is, you're never going to succeed. You can't describe to someone who's never seen color what the color blue is, can you? So why is that? Why can't we describe it? <laughs> so I think one, one sort of indication of why is because you can't divide it up. So if you take the color blue, you can't somehow divide it into bits and then describe the relationships between the bits. And there's nothing that you can easily compare it with that's like it. You, you're, you're somehow stuck with just this thing, and there's no, no way that language can reach through to that thing. That, it seems to me, is what's going on in our relationship to reality. We can't reach through. We can't describe it. So what are we doing? How can we think about what's going on here? And I think a starting point is to think, well, think of the world as a not thing. It's not anything in particular, and it's not differentiated. You might initially have a go at thinking, well, it's a sort of undifferentiated flux. But of course, that would be to be a description. It would give you a sense of, oh, I've got a sense of what it is. <laughs> but at the moment, just think of it, well, it's not a thing, and it's not divided into things. And it's language and thought that close this potential into individual things. And it's on the basis of those things that we then intervene in the world. How does that work? Well, I'm going to give you a metaphor. Think of uh, our senses as being like flags in the wind. Imagine for a moment you're in an underground bunker and you've never experienced the wind. And what you've got is a screen in front of you, and you see these flags waving. Now, you could build all sorts of stories about these flags. You could identify patterns in the way the flags are moving. You could use them to predict how the flags might work in future. You might notice that, oh, if it starts waving over there, it tends to move over here. You might build an ever more sophisticated account of how those flags are, are working, which enable you to predict really quite accurately how they're going to function in the future. But you're not going to understand what the wind is, are you? You're nowhere near the wind. It's got the wind something else altogether. But it doesn't stop your, your account of the flags, enabling you to have an account of what they might be and how they could be projected to be in the future. 
That's, I think, exactly what we should, how we should think of our senses functioning. So to use the uh, parallel of the scientific story, the scientific narrative of how our sensation is working, and I choose the scientific story, not because I'm saying, oh, this is how it is, but it is the ones that we've got. We have to operate within the frameworks, the narratives we've got, within what I would call the closures that we use to make sense of the world. And within the context of that scientific story, each neuron, and we have two billion of them, two billion <laughs> of sensory neurons, each neuron responds to the openness of the world. And unlike the flags, and this is an important and key factor, unlike the flags, it has only two responses. It either fires or it doesn't fire. That's all, all, all it's going on. It either fires or it doesn't fire. And indeed, there's a scientific law, the all or none law, which is it doesn't make any difference how you increase the input. You only get the firing out at the end. There's no halfway house. It, it doesn't, there's no, uh, it fires a bit or it fires a lot. It just fires or it doesn't fire. There's only two, two, two spaces for it. And what the neuron is doing in that situation is it taking the whole, the whole of the openness of the world and it's turning it into one thing the firing of the neuron. And we don't think the firing of the neuron is a description of the world, do we? We don't think somehow out there there's a description of the a, a firing of a neuron. No, it's a response. Our, our experience is a response to the world, not a description of the world. And what we do is we take those responses and we then build an account of them which enables us to intervene. So, having had all of these initial closures, as it were, of, of the way that the neurons are generating something in particular, we then have another layer. We might take a million of these neurons firing as a patch of blue. But that patch of blue, just like the firing of the neuron, is not out there. It's how we hold all of those million neurons as one thing not as a million different things, as one thing. And that gives us something blue. And we do that with all of our inputs. So all of our inputs, we turn into uh, the things, as it were, which are the, the sensations that we experience. And they're not descriptions of the world. They've got nothing to do with the world. They're ways of holding it, looking at our response. Now, of course, our senses could have held the world differently, couldn't they? <laughs> I mean, there are plenty of animals that don't have the same physiology as we do. Dogs, for example, have 40 times as many sensory neurons for smell that we do. 40 times. That's double the number that we have for sight. Sight's the most important for us. But they have double the number for smell that we have for sight. So their world, their sensory world, is utterly different from ours. And they intervene on the basis of that way of closing the world. There's no right way of closing it. It's not as if the senses are somehow discovering the right way to close it. There's an indefinite number of flags that we could have to the world. And if you look across the animal kingdom, that's why you do all sorts of different ways of, of responding. Now, the closures of thought and language are just the same thing. We often think of thought as being quite different from sensation. Actually, I, I, in some sense, I don't think it is. What's going on is that we thought we are just holding, doing the same thing. We're holding a lot of different things as one thing. Only with, with thought, we hold 
sensations as one thing. So I might pick this up, and I, I have a sensation. It's a bit, a bit cold. It's sort of hard. It's different where I hold on to it, so I get lots of different sensations. And visually, there's an indefinite number of visual sensations from whether I see it from this perspective or that. You know, in fact, there are you know, millions of them. We hold all of those different things as one and the same. That thing isn't out there any more than the, the sensory neuron firing or the feel of the hardness or whatever. It's just a way of holding the world. And of course, we could have held them differently. And that's the key thing about thought, is that with physiology, we've got no damn choice. We, we've just inherited millions of years of evolution, it responding in the way it is. We look up at the sky on a sunny day, it is blue. We can't hold it as orange. We've got no control over that. And that's a function of our evolutionary process. It might have been different had we evolved differently. But with thought, we can change how we hold the world. I mean, we could say, OK, think of this as a container. Think of it as a collection of silicon atoms. Think of it as a drink. Think of it as a weapon. You can hop from one of those closures to another, can't you? You can just hop one uh, after the other. And we choose through thought which one we'll go with. And there's no, no right one. There's no underlying thing, oh, it really is a glass, rather than it really is a weapon. There are ways of holding the world which enable us to intervene. Now, many people, I think, when first coming across this thought, have a concern that this feels as if we can make up any old thing, that anything goes. And that's not right. We've got lots of constraint. I've explained the, the, the constraint of uh, our physiology. We've got no, no room for maneuver there. And in terms of our thought, we inherit all sorts of stories and closures about the world from our parents, from our friends, from our culture, from the whole environment that we're in. And we can't abandon all of that like overnight. We can abandon little bits of it. We can, we can, to some extent, think of some things a little bit different. We can choose, as I say, to see this as a weapon rather than a uh, glass. But we can't abandon it all at once. We, we have to stick roughly to the sort of things that everyone else is doing, because otherwise uh, we can't communicate with them. And actually, as uh, children, we're corrected all the time. We use the wrong word. We say it in the wrong way. No, 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 no. It's like this. But it's not like that it has to be like that. It's just that that's the way we do it in order to uh, communicate. And there are many sort of characteristics of this structure of openness and closure which affect the way we then think. We can see some radically different ways here in the sense that computers close the world in terms of noughts and ones. I mean, they don't have experience, I'm not suggesting that, but we've created machines which divide the world into naught and one. It's immensely powerful, isn't it? We've, as a result of doing that, we've got machines that can think uh, and calculate much faster than we can, that can play chess better than we can, that can translate languages and all, all, all sorts of things like that. Well, sort of. <laughs> but it's all from naught and one. And in the same way, the same is the case with our firing of the neurons. We've got everything from firing or not firing. <laughs> That's all. And it's just built in a giant series of patterns and closures that we've made to try and make sense 
of where we are and how we can intervene. But every closure that we have, every idea that we have that closes the world a certain way, does not succeed in describing the world. It holds the world as something. It doesn't describe the world, it holds it as something. And it's never going to succeed because the world's always something entirely different. So there's an imbridgeable gap between our idea and how the world is. And that's true whatever framework we come up with. So we shouldn't be surprised then that no scientific theory is safe from revision. Well, of course it isn't. <laughs> it can't ever arrive. There are always going to be issues with our patterning, however good we get at it. And not just little things at the edge. They're always going to be fundamental at some level. That's why when we put forward a new bit to our theory, we can always ask other questions to it. So, you know, we've created you know, dark matter and dark energy recently to, to patch up our, our, our overall account of the universe, which was uh, not working very well. In the process, we, we invented 95% of it. But that's not the end of it. We can ask then questions about that. And we're never going to get to the bottom of those questions. You sort of knew that. Didn't you? you sort of knew we were never going to get to the bottom. Because if we did, we could just pack up our universities. We could all go home and it will be over. And wouldn't life be dull? So we sort of know this, but this is an explanation of you know, why that's the case. No theory is safe. And all of our theories are going to fail. So what does this mean? What, do we, what should we do? Well, I think that we have to rethink what it is to believe something. We can't, first of all, it can't arrive. It can't be an absolute story of the world. But secondly, it can't attempt to be an absolute story of the world. We have to think about that claim in a different sort of way. It's a claim that it might enable us to achieve something. Now, you might feel, well, I don't really like this. I don't, I, I've, I've, I've been... You know, I've learned all about reality at school. I've grown up. I've had, a, I've had a lifetime of understanding. I've got some sense of where I am. And now you're telling me, you know, we've got to give all of this away and I'm going to be lost. It sounds very scary. Well, it's not very scary. We've got these frameworks which have enabled us to do all sorts of things, which have enabled us to understand the world in ways which are, in some ways, immensely successful, in some ways, rather less successful. But we don't have to give them all up. We, in fact, we can't give them all up. We couldn't, we, we, we couldn't even begin to imagine what it would be to do that. So we've just got this stuff of where we are that we can operate within. And we need to try and improve it and make it better and more effective. But at the same time, we can keep, as it were, the magic of being alive, the idea that there is something that we are never going to get to the bottom of, that we can explore, that we can have new potential to do things that we can't do at the moment. We can hold the world differently. If it's gone wrong, instead of thinking, well, we're just trapped, you know, this is, this, we just, no, no, no. Let's just think about whether we can, whether we can hold it differently and make, a, make the world a little bit better in, in, in some ways. Now, the tools of the Enlightenment were observation and reason. They were, of course, it, immensely successful. They've also run into trouble, haven't they? Lots of things that we've developed with the Enlightenment which have generated their own problems. But the tools, in terms of enabling us to improve the models, will be very successful. They have misled us, though, as a result of their success, 
into thinking we are uncovering that reality. And we just have to give up on that bit of it. Now, some people, understandably, in the light of this, have tended to think, well, I'm a bit nervous about this observation and reason. I, I don't like it. It seems to be a monolithic story of the world. I don't want to buy that story. Well, that's quite right, because, of course, those tools were used to pursue certain ends and goals of a, a culture and the people who are running that culture. But we don't need to give up the process of looking to see whether our closures are successful and whether they conflict with other ways that we want to hold the world. So I think we need to double down on observation and reason. We just have to give up thinking that we might arrive at the truth. Reality is a theological notion. It's a superstition. That's why those characteristics in the outset of everything and everywhere and unattainable and unavailable and elusive feel rather familiar. It's a theological notion. And it's time to give up on our superstition in favor of an alternative perspective where we see the potential we have to intervene in the world and achieve things and to express ways of holding it that enable us to do things we can't do at the moment, but not to imagine that we have arrived or that we can ever arrive. Now, I just want one brief postscript to the story that I, I've given you, which is, of course, this account of openness and closure doesn't claim to be the truth either. Because like all other th theories, it's a way of closing the world. But that doesn't mean to say that I don't think it has value. It just means this is a way of holding it. I think it's got a lot of things going for it, surprisingly enough. I mean, we live in a very divided world, don't we? And it seems to be becoming ever more divisive. And I think it's just possible that giving up on the idea that any of us are ever right might be, might be a preferable space. It doesn't mean to say we can't pursue things that we want to pursue, but it does mean that we are less tempted to somehow impose them on everybody else. It doesn't stop there being disagreement. We've got different things we want to do with our accounts of the world and our closures, but it does mean perhaps that we'd have just a little bit more humility about our own accounts. It seems to me that the, the account of openness of closure that I've provided you with here enables us to have all of the strengths of the Enlightenment tradition in one sense, have that science and technology, have those things that have helped our, our lives, like anaesthetics and so forth, that have undeniably good things. We can have all of that, and at the same time, have the um, wonder and the imagination of the arts. We can have the down-to-earth practical stuff, and we can have the mystery of what it is to be alive. That seems to me a pretty exciting place to be. And just one final thought, which is that what I'm offering you here, therefore, is in a way, a way to hold the world, which has the appearance of holding it fast when the world cannot be held at all. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy for Our Times. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe on your platform of choice and visit our website, ii.tv, for hundreds more podcasts, videos and articles. 
from the world's leading thinkers. Let's jump into Peppa's world of play. Look for spring flowers, hunt for muddy puddles, and bravely explore exciting places with Peppa play sets. Peppa Pig, inspiring kid confidence.